this morning, my voice is with me, we'll be at the, with the Canons of Dort, so make sure you have your copies of that out and ready to go. Article 10 is where we'll be. Don't have yours broken down. Mine's called Election Based on God's Good Pleasure. We made it past that one, but that's where we'll go back to that one here in a minute. So make sure you have your notes, everything ready to go. When you're there, tell me, amen, you're good to go. (laughs) All right, you have to, you can answer from memory. You can answer from memory, okay? (laughs) All right, here we go. All right, let's, uh, this morning what's going to happen is, we are finally at that situation where uh, the canons and Romans are going to come together, right? And um, so this is going to kind of have some overlap between this hour and the next hour. Um, and we're going to kind of open up a, a new problem. Uh, we always find these problems to deal with, but that's what we will uh, we'll try to work on and see what we can find. I want to begin with a, an interesting quote I heard this week and I wrote it down. And uh, we, can, we can think about this because I think this is going to be, we're going to see this come into light here um, as we start trying to take these concepts apart. Uh, this is the quote. The truth is like the sun. The closer you look, the more it blinds. The truth is like the sun. The closer you look, the more it blinds. What do you think the author of that quote meant? Read it again. The truth is like the sun. The closer you look, the more it blinds. What do you think the author meant by that quote? No. Now, you, if you disagree with a the quote, then you can make that argument. I would, I would agree with the quote. Okay. All right. I think when we look at truth from a distance, it looks simplistic, it looks easy, and we're appeased by it. The closer we get to the truth, we find out it's not as as easy as it seems. It becomes far more complicated, far more difficult. That's why people usually want to stay a couple of miles from the truth. They don't want to get really close to the truth because if they do, there's more problems. Have we not discovered that a million times in things that we've studied? I mean, that quote literally is the history of our church. Name a doctrine. When we look at the doctrine from a distance, everyone says, amen. And then I'm, and I always just like, okay, they, they think it's simple. And then I wait. And then when we come back to the doctrine and I move us closer, is it as easy as it first seemed? The answer is what? No, it's not even co- not even anywhere close. It's not even anywhere close. Um, I mean, we've seen that simple something as simple as um, in, in Matthew six. Hey, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink. God's going to provide from a distance. That seems what? 
Of course, when we get closer, we're like, well, wait a minute. How many people starve to death every day? Okay, wait, wait, wait. Now, now, we're not denying that what the Bible says is true, but when you get close to the truth, you start realizing, wait a minute, maybe it's not as simple as it seemed when I was two miles away from the truth. I was like, oh, look, there's the answer. Okay, I'm okay. Now, there's lots of people who like to live two miles away from the truth. Right? That's A, they don't love the truth, and B, they don't want to think about the complicated questions. The truth usually raises more questions than it answers. For every truth, there's more questions than there are answers, unless you are capable of not find, seeing the questions that the truth... And that's what I always do, right? I give you the truth, and then I always ask something like, so what questions should you ask? Don't I say that like all the time? Well, why am I asking questions about truth if truth clarifies? The answer should be, clearly, the truth raises what? More more questions, right? That's very important. And we're getting ready to see that this morning. So I wanted to, to read that quote because I think it fits perfectly because this morning we're going to get really close to a truth. <laughs> and it's not, we're going to be blinded by the time it's over and it's going to, re, it's going to be controversial, but I, it's not my fault that we're there. All right, here we go. Let's go back to Article 10. Article 10 of the Canons of Dort, if, depending on how yours is broken down, should be uh, something on the election is based on God's good pleasure. Right? The good pleasure of God is the sole cause of this gracious election, which does not consist herein that out of all possible qualities and actions of man, God has chosen some as a condition of salvation, but that he was pleased out of the common mass of sinners to adopt some certain persons as peculiar people to himself. As, as it is written, and then it quotes um, Romans 9, 11 through 13, and Acts 13, uh, 48. I'm not going to read everything uh, about this. Bottom line is, what's the simple uh, understanding of this article? God chooses based on what? His good pleasure has nothing to do with what? Us. Nothing about what we do, nothing about us, not, nothing because we're different than other people. Right, it's not, nothing based on that. All right, Article 11 was election is unchangeable, right? And, that's, uh, and what's key about that? Right, God's unchangeable, therefore if he elects someone, it has to be unchangeable, all right? And this leads to what doctrine? Okay, once saved, always saved, or what would be another term? Eternal security of the believer, what would be another term? Perseverance of the saints. Okay, all right. So we're all there. Now, this brought us to Article 12, and this is where all the problems begin. All right? Here we go. Once you say election is based on what God does, has nothing to do with us, right? That takes us out of the picture. Because God chose me, he will not unchoose me, Based on anything I do, once again, removing us from the equation, right? We're not involved in any way. It's all up to God. Now, we, so this raises an important question, all right? If God does the choosing, if God does the saving, if God does everything, then what do I base my assurance on? 
What do, what do I base my assurance of salvation on? Okay. Now, well, now this becomes the, the debate. Do I base my assurance on God chose me, God saved me, so my assurance is based on the character and power of God, or do I look to myself for assurance? It's a big debate. What do most Christians answer? How do most Christians answer this question? Right. Therefore, canceling out. Most Christians look to what for assurance? What we do. That's how we ju- judge it, right? When we look at other people, do we judge them based on God? No, we base them on what we see. Well, I don't think this person is a Christian. And then we say, why do we not think they're a Christian? And then we list what? Behaviors. They do this, they do this, they do this. So we don't base it off God, we base it off us. Now, is that a contradiction? Some will say yes, some will say no. If it's a contradiction, well then how do we find assurance of salvation? Do I look to me or do I look to God? This is important. Most Christians do not look to God. They may claim it all day, but it's, it's an absolute lie because they don't look to this person and go, man, this person is doing all these bad things, but salvation is based off grace. <laughs> no. They're like, they do all these bad things demonstrating that I say. That's not basing it off God. Right? There's just, I mean, you can't, you can't make a claim and then completely contradict your claim. Right? Does that make sense? All right, so let's remember what the canons of Dort tried to offer us. The assurance of election. How do we know? The elect in due time, though in various degrees and in different measures, attain the assurance of this, their eternal and unchangeable election. All right, stop right here. Now, this is already radically opposed to most Christianity today, right? Let me give you an example. This is claiming that assurance comes in what way? This is claiming that assurance comes in what way? Doesn't come all at once. Comes over time. Agreed? Okay, in due time. Let me read it again. The elect in due time, though in various degrees and in different measures, attain the assurance of this, their eternal, unchangeable election. So the first thing they claim is that this doesn't happen at once. Now that already goes against most, Christi- most Christianity in 2019 in America. Because most Christians today say you can be what? Absolutely sure. And what do you need to do to be absolutely sure? Remember the day? That you asked Jesus, when you said the prayer, remember the day. And if you don't don't have it nailed down, this is what many churches will do, you need to get that settled today. So at the end of my sermon, come up to the altar, say that prayer, write the, and and I've even heard sermons where they say, write the date and time in the front of your Bible, and whenever you question your salvation, go back and look at that. Now, right there is weird because if that's the basis of, of, of assurance, then don't sit there and go, well, wait a minute, Bobby, you're not doing this, this, and this, and this, and this. You're not saved because Bobby would be able to respond, look at the date and the time I said my prayer. So even that, and those churches, they'll contradict. 
How do you know you're saved? You remember the day you said the prayer. However, this, this, no, you're not. So where's my assurance? Do I look at the time I said the prayer? Or do I look at my current condition? Remember, we talked about this. We've talked about this extensively in the history of this church. Is the assurance of salvation based off a past decision or a present condition? Is it based off a past decision or a present condition? Right? I mean, I'm just I'm, what I'm trying to show you is that even within Christianity, there's very little agreement on these issues. There's very little agreement. Or there's contradictory agreement. Like, oh yeah, it's, it's based on a past decision. But you have to have the present condition to prove the past decision. Well then, then the assurance doesn't come from the past decision. It comes from present condition. So why even write the date down? And, and Which is it? Which is it? I think a lot of these things were created to get people to come forward at altar calls. Okay, which the whole altar call decision is, you know, we can go, we can thank Charles Finney for that nonsense. Okay, obviously I reject that idea. But you, I mean, because they always came up with ways to get people to come forward. I mean, I, I witnessed it in, in church, you know. Hey, when, uh, like if you're getting ready to join the church, okay, wait till the altar call and then you come forward because if you come forward, it may motivate other people to come. So now we're trying to find a way to manipulate people to come forward. Like, oh man, this is just not... Or they'll they'll say, okay, if you're a Christian and you didn't love God today, you need to come forward, right? Because I'll get the Christians to come forward that then may may motivate that non-Christian to... It's just such a game, all right? So we we still got to figure this out. I do agree. Well, put it this way. I do think it's an interesting approach because their approach is you don't get assurance immediately. Their argument is you you gain assurance over time. Now, you may, there may be disagreements with that even in here. I don't know, but we'll see, all right? The elect in due time, though in various degrees and in different measures, attain the assurance of this, their eternal and unchangeable election, not by inquisitively prying into secret and deep things of God. Stop right there. You don't get this assurance by doing what? No, no, read the... In other words, you're not going to get assurance by trying to study how election works. Right? You're not going to be able to figure that out. Right? The deep thing, I mean, you, uh, a prayer would be not the deep things of God, it'd be something you did. Right? Inquisitively prying into the deep things of God is trying to understand, they, 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 because this is in context of what? Remember the, the, the title? The assurance of election. Everybody got that? All right. So you're not going to be able to figure out that you are elect or not elect by somehow prying into the secret things of God because you can't understand them. You can't, I can't figure out what God did, how God did it. I can't figure those things out. So what do, what do they offer as the option? Okay. Not by prying into the secret deep things of God, but by observing in themselves. Stop right there. So where do you look for assurance? Within yourself. Okay. All right. Now, this is where we're going to get into some issues. All right. Now, how 
This raises the whole question of what? And we can write this down. This brings up the question of evidence of salvation. And what they're arguing is the only way for you to know if you're truly elect, if you're truly saved, is you have to look to yourself to see if the evidence proves your profession. You profess it, now do you have evidence to prove it? Now, what is the problem with the, Again, from two miles away, that sounds like an easy answer, right? Yeah, for, because you've all accepted that answer two miles away. It's like, yeah, sounds good, right? Hey, not, not everyone who claims to be a Christian is a Christian, right? Only people who demonstrate that they're a Christian is a Christian. Sounds good two miles away. When you get up close, what starts happening? Well, you start asking, well, how much evidence is required to prove, how much evidence do I need? And not only that, what do I start trusting in? I start trusting in me. I'm not trusting in the finished work of, because what? On one hand, we preach what? My salvation is based on Christ alone. Not what I do, but what he he did. Okay, well, if he did it, he accomplished it, then why am I looking to me and I'm not looking to the cross? Which is it? I, I, I think we can make an, a case for that, but, but it's still going to come. Is someone looking to the cross? Okay, they're looking to the cross. They claim they're looking to the cross, but their life doesn't reflect anything. What, how, do you, how do you judge that? Well, we can think... When Peter was denying Jesus three times, did he look saved? Okay. Right? Well, that, yeah, that gets back to Romans 2, right? Okay, and our, ability, our ability to judge is all messed up. But this raises lots of questions. What do you look to? Where should your assurance come from? Where should your assurance come from? Right? Now, they say, but by observing in themselves with a spiritual joy and holy pleasure, the infallible fruits of election Pointed out in the word of God. All right, so where should I look? I look to myself, and what do I try to find? The infallible fruits of election. The infallible fruits. Now, what's the, what's the, key, what's the key word there? Infallible, meaning what? Okay. There's no argument against it. It's infallible. It's, it's perfect. It's correct. So all I need to do is look to myself, find that infallible fruit, and where do they say it's found? Pointed out in the Word of God. Now remember, the other articles had scriptures at the end? This one doesn't. <laughs> okay, right there already disturbs, already bothers me, right? Because if you're, if you're telling me there's infallible fruit pointed out in the Word of God that I can look to, you need to list all of that fruit where I can go, okay, I have this, I don't have this. Now, if they were going to use a scripture, what scripture could they possibly point out? What scripture, if you were going to point infallible fruit, what scripture would you go to? Is it Galatians? Y'all look. Y'all tell me. You know, I don't do the work for you. I know you would prefer me sometimes to do the work for you, but. Do I? Does someone have it? 
Okay. All right, Galatians 5.22. All right, let's look at this. All right. Now, let's just say this is the infallible fruit that I'm supposed to look to. Right? Let's just say this is it. Right? Because we do, we do interesting things with list as Christians. Right? We do interesting things with list. Okay? For example, we have the qualifications of a pastor in 1 Timothy. Right? And it lists certain things. Right? Husband of one wife. Right? Apt to teach. Give some basic things. There's a lot of things not listed there. Correct? Nothing about sexual sin is even mentioned. Agreed? But if that happens, then we say they are disqualified. Well, based off what? And so they'll say, well, it says the husband of one wife. That, that implies it. Well, okay, well, wait a minute. How, where are we, we going to go with this, right? And then there's other things that are listed that no one ever gets in trouble for, right? Pride. Covetousness, right? I mean, there's certain things like, wait, do you ever see anyone church uh, disqualified for ministry for those two things? Okay, right, right, right. Like those things. Like, how do you how do you do? So we we use list in weird ways. Well, if this is the infallible fruit. If this is the infallible fruit, then let's look at it. All right, but the fruit of the spirit is Galatians five twenty two. But the fruit of the spirit is love. Stop right there. Okay, love is the infallible fruit to prove your salvation. All right, now what's the obvious question? Well, now, remember, if we stay two miles from the truth, everyone will say what? Amen! Yeah! Okay, well, that's a, that's a useless amen. Get close to it. Now, what, do you have, what are the questions that arise once you get close to it? How often? Who do I love? How now I could go all love of God, love of neighbors, love of people, is it both? Is it right? Right? Because if I go to love of God, I'm supposed to love God with all my Right? Is anybody did that this week? So what happens to the infallible fruit? You're supposed to love your enemy. Everybody love their enemies? Now this week you may be good because you weren't around your enemies. <laughs> But if you got an enemy close by, did you love them? Right? I mean, did you truly show that kind of love? Did you, did you show love in your own family? Christ-like love, husbands loving their wives as Christ's love, church. Did that happen? Now, obviously wives are supposed to love their husbands because they're supposed to love even their enemies. Right? Right? True? So did you do that? Now, you're going to say, well, I did pretty good. I did, like, it's supposed to be infallible fruit. Right. How, how, does, this, how does this work? Right. All right. What's the next fruit? How do you, how do you, met? you see, it, it sounds so good, but it comes across as what? Yeah, very good. It, it, it's hard to put a quantity or a quality of it. You're just kind of like, okay, well, I'm supposed to have joy, but how much joy? Remember, this is according to them, the infallible fruit, the infallible fruit. That's the point I want to drive home. It's the infallible fruit. If it's the infallible fruit, then we're left with lots of questions. Will everyone agree? Next. Peace. Next, 
Long-suffering or patience? Oh, boy. <laughs> okay, right? Gentleness. That's mine right there. I mean, that's, that's me. Okay. That's, I mean, that's, my, I mean, that's mine all day. Ask anyone. They'll be like, he's the gentle person. Okay. Goodness. Faith. Meekness. Temperance. Now, stop right there. Now, please note, if that's the infallible fruit, now, of course, they don't tell us what it is, do they? Which has already bothers me all day. Now, they assume everyone knows, but if this is the infallible fruit, please note, this is the thing, if this is the way we're supposed to determine if we're saved, that doesn't fit the list that most Christians use. Because most Christians would use what list? How you dress. What kind of music you listen to? Like, I mean, you've all heard the list, right? Do you watch certain, do you watch rated R movies or only PG-13? Because all of a sudden there's a ma- magic difference there, you know? Okay, right, okay, right? Do you, do you, oh, I don't listen to any of that bad secular music. Oh, but I watch secular movies, but secular movies, I read secular literature, but that's okay. Just don't listen to secular music. Some weird, like, weird divi- division between things, right? You know, what you wear, what, uh, what you watch, what you listen to, um, you know, sexual sin, abortion. None of those things are listed here. Now, you could go up and say, what's the fruit of the Spirit, right? You could talk about those things, right? So if we go back up, the works of the flesh, adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lasciviousness. Okay, you could say that would demonstrate, that would demonstrate uh, being lost. But then you have to go, wait a minute, adul- adultery and fornication, uh, sexual sin can occur in the mind. So are you talking only sexual sin that occurs physically? Which, which is it? Idolatry. Idolatry could be anything. Witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelings. Okay? Well, there, there, you could put some of that there. How do you judge this? Now, there was like, they were talking about the fruit of the Spirit, right? They're not talking necessarily about those others, but you you can try to build some kind of case, but what's the problem with trying to build those cases? It sounds good until you start trying to apply it, right? Because you start trying to apply it, you're like, and remember, who's supposed to be applying this to whom? To the self. And you're like, okay, well... We've already discovered in Romans 2 that what we are incapable of making correct judgment. Unless you're going to believe, well, now that I'm a Christian, I can make correct judgment. We don't make correct judgments all the time. We can, that's demonstrably false that Christians always make good judgments. That's just absolutely false. We make wrong judgments about others. We make wrong judgments about self. So how can I be trusted to make a judgment about myself that says, I'm elect? And then, not just that, we, we, we're going to sin, so how, how do you work this? All right, but well, let's continue. All right, uh, uh, now they say, uh, the infallible fruits of election pointed out in the word of God, such as, here are the ones they give, true faith in Christ. Now that's not even mentioned. <laughs> so, so that, are they even referencing that? Okay, right, true faith in Christ. All right, that's good. Next. Filial fear, right? Which, which, what's that mean? What is that referencing? 
Okay, yeah, reverent fear like a, a child is to have a correct fear to a parent. All right, everybody got that idea? All right, so reverent fear, next. A godly sorrow for sin, next. A hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And let's just go with their list. Okay, they give etc., but let's just go with their list. All right, all right, so true faith in Christ. All right, that may be easier to judge, maybe, right? Do I truly believe in Christ? Okay, you may be able to judge that. God, uh, filial, filial fear. That may be harder to fear. How are that harder to determine? How do you know if you truly fear God? Now, if I go through the Old Testament, what's one of the indication, indicators that I truly fear God? I will obey Him. Do you perfectly obey Him? If I don't perfectly obey Him, that would seem to argue... I don't truly fear him. If I don't truly fear him, that would argue that I don't, I don't have one of the infallible fruits. You see, it, it's great when it's way back there, right? Well, I fear God more than that lost person. Well, what, what does that mean? Like, are you supposed to now, are you comparing your, your standard that, according to that person who, you know, does drive-by shootings on Friday nights, I fear God more than them, like that's now now you're you see the standard becomes all broken, all right? Next, godly sorrow for sin. How much sorrow do you truly demonstrate for sin? Because everyone here sins every week. How much sorrow do you demonstrate for it? What is it supposed to look like? Next, a hungering and thirsting after righteousness. How do you measure how much you hunger and thirst? How, how would you even measure if you hunger and thirst after righteousness? What does that look like? It sound, all of that sounds great, right? And you're like, amen, until you get close to it. And you're like, well, how do I, how do, how do I quantify this? How do I measure this? Right. I mean, right. Do I fear enough? Do I sorrow enough? And do I hunger and thirst enough? What is enough? Because I would argue, like, how much did you sorrow this week over your sin? How much sorrow was present in your life this week over sin? I mean, honestly. Godly sorrow. Not just sorrow, godly sorrow. Now, I would argue you probably didn't demonstrate a lot, did you? All right, well, then, where's your, then, then do you look at yourself today and go, you're not saved? Did you hunger and thirst after righteousness this week? I mean, truly hunger and thirsted after righteousness this week? If you're like, well, no, I don't know. Okay, then you're not saved? Now, this all becomes based off what? It's all, it's, we're forgetting that. How do you balance that? Now, let's go to the next one. Article 13. The fruit of this assurance All right. Now, we have the assurance where the assurance comes from infallible fruit, right? Everybody got that? And then that assurance should do what? The fruit of this assurance, they seem to be arguing that assurance should produce fruit in your life. Let's see what they have to say. The sense and certainty of this election afford to the children of God additional matter for daily humiliation before him, for adoring the depths, the depth of his mercies, 
for cleansing themselves and rendering grateful returns of ardent love to him who first manifested so great love towards them. The consideration of this doctrine of election is so far from encouraging remiss in the observance of the divine commands or from sinking men and carnal security that these and the just judgment of God are the usual effects of rash presumption or of idle and wanton trifling with the grace of election and those who refuse to walk in the way of the elect. All right, simply put, what are they trying to deal with here? Probably the remonstrance, um, Pelagians, and you've all heard this. What is the number one argument against that you always hear from people and believing once saved, always saved? People live any way they want. And so they're arguing, no, 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 no. Once you get the assurance of your election, it will lead to a deeper humiliation. It will lead to a better way of living. You will be even more grateful. You will even be more uh, desiring to follow the things of God. Right? That's their argument. Now, you could argue, is that true or not true? Well, really what you're adding, you're adding another requirement. Once you determine, I am saved, then that should lead you to a greater level of commitment. So, in other words, it's just adding more list for you to determine if you are truly saved or not saved. Because if I think I'm saved, then I should even be more committed to Christ. So if, I have, if I'm not more committed, then how do I know? Now, this is a difficult situation. Now, Article 14 now goes to the teaching election properly. How do you teach it properly? All right, but before we get there, we have to stop. All right. So, let's, let's, uh, we're going to identify this problem, and this is where Romans and the canons are going to start crashing into each other, right? Here we go. All right. So, what do we, what, what problem are we left to try to unpack here? The problem is this. What, and let me state it again. What is the basis of your assurance of salvation? What is the basis of your assurance of salvation? Right? Now, we've got... Let's... let's so what, let's, well, ask, let's write the question down. What is the basis of your salvation? All right, let's do this. Let's write the question down. What is the basis of your salvation? What is the assurance, or what is the basis of your assurance of salvation? All right. Now, let's come up with all of our possible answers. Everybody ready? All right, what's number one? What's the first possible uh, basis of your assurance? What's number one? Let's write down possible answers. How would some Christians answer this? Okay. All right, well, we'll we'll go with a more common one. The basis of your assurance should be you being able to remember the day and the hour of your decision, right? In other words, the basis of your salvation is when you said, quote-unquote, the sinner's prayer, you asked Jesus into your heart, you believed on him. Would you agree some churches teach that as the basis of your assurance? Yes, I don't think there's any way to get around that. They may not always be consistent with that, but they at least point that out in sermon after sermon. I heard it, um, 
I don't know what sermon, I was, it was American Family Radio, I don't know who was speaking, but someone said, you know, if, if you're not, if you don't remember the day and, and the hour, we're going to fix that tonight. Same kind of concept. I'm going to have everyone say a prayer tonight, and then you're going to be able to know for sure that you're saved, okay? All right. Okay. All right. Uh, some, some could argue that. Some could argue baptism is the basis of assurance. We'll put that down. Okay? Now, I don't know. If someone says that, let's be fair. No church teaches that. All right, let's just make sure we're fair. No church teaches baptism is the, is the thing to look to to assure you of your salvation. Agreed? Because every church that believes baptism is a part of salvation also teaches what? That you can lose it. So it would be anybody who claims that is not being fair, right? Church of Christ believes baptism is essential for salvation, but they believe you can. So obviously baptism is not an assurance. Catholics believe baptism is uh, the sacrament that brings you into it. You're infused with grace, but you have to cooperate with that grace. You can commit a mortal sin, lose that grace. So Lutherans, same thing. So so let's just be fair. Like... uh, uh, on the second one, Baptism just put, some people think this, no church teaches it. Right? Because no theology teaches that. Let's just be fair with it. Because a lot of people accuse Catholics of believing that, and it's like you don't even know what you're talking about, because that's not, that's not fair. And it's just crazy that Lutherans, now not all the Lutherans teach you can lose it, but many do. And if you teach you can lose it, it's just mind-boggling to me how they, because that's so contradictory. Baptism is a work of God. Well, then it's not a work that lasts. <laughs> that's why I started having major issues with Lutherans. I was like, wait a minute. Because they wanted to say that baptism is not a work we do. It's a work God does. Right? It's a sacrament. God's doing the work. I'm like, well, if God did the work, how come the work doesn't last? Because I was, I was raising this question to my Lutheran pastor. I was like, you put me with all these you know, Lutheran young people. I don't think there's one saved one in the church. They're all apostate. So the baptism didn't work. Well, you can lose it. Well, then, so, so God's work is not sufficient? So whose work was baptism? Was it God's or was it ours? Well, if it was God's, it can't last. Or we can disqual... Like, okay... Again, it looks good from where? Two miles. You get close enough to it and you just become more blinded by it. Right, but so we'll put number two down. All right, what would be a third option for the, what's the basis of your assurance? What would be a third option? Okay, I don't know if, I don't think anyone believes this, okay, but we'll put it down. that my basis of my assurance is the finished work of Christ. I don't think anyone truly, I don't think there's a Christian on the face of the planet who actually believes that. And the reason I say that is because Christians are always the first people to say what? So-and-so is not saved because so-and-so left her husband and now, you know, she stopped going to church. Clearly she was never saved. She claimed to be saved, but she dropped out of church. You know, she, she started doing drugs, and, and then she got pregnant. She had an abortion. Clearly, she was never saved. We've all heard that language a million times by Christian people that we know. Clearly, they're not saying that God's grace is the thing that is the assurance based off of. Because 
Christ's finished work didn't change. That person sinned. And they'll say, well, 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 it, you know, she may be saved. I mean, if, if six months from now, if a year from now she comes back, then she was. Well, was she? Wasn't? Like, how do you make the determination, right? Because, trust me, no one in this church would have said David was saved. Right. Even though God said it was a man after God's own heart, all of us would have condemned him to the 18th point. No one here would have said Solomon was saved. <laughs> right? Right? He wouldn't even be allowed to preach. Now, it's just funny. He wouldn't be allowed to preach, <clears throat> but I'm allowed to preach his word. <laughs> In the words, he, that's, that's kind of funny, right? He couldn't preach, but I can preach his words. He, he was good enough to write the words down. He just wouldn't be good enough to preach, right? And then you can go on. When Peter would deny Jesus, we'd have all been in the, we'd have been in, in, you know, in, the, in, in the house hiding. We'd have been like, oh, Peter's not saved. Peter's not saved. He denied him three. He denied him three times. Now, we're hiding because we're scared to death. Okay? But, you know, uh, you know, he's not sick. We, we do it all the time. In theory, we believe that the finished work of Christ is the basis. But in practice, we're not so consistent. Okay, and then what would be the next option? Okay, looking at fruit, right? I'm a fruit inspector. Remember how Christians always say that? I don't judge you. I'm just a fruit inspector. Okay, whatever. Right. Pastors say that. Okay. Right. Yeah, it means I look. You've got to give me enough evidence. got to give me enough evidence. Right. How do I judge this evidence? Those, aren't those the four bases? Okay. Raises lots of questions, does it not? Now, this is the reason why we're, we're going to raise this question. Go to Romans chapter 2. All right. <clears throat> now, I know, we, I know we took a week off. Whenever we do that, I know it's going to be hard for everyone to remember. So that's okay. We'll get everyone back, at least kind of put together. And then we'll repeat some of this in the next hour as well. All right. We'll try to at least get us to where the problem is. All right. Everybody remembers Romans 1, 18 and following. Correct? Yes, we spent like a couple of years on it, it feels like. Okay. All right. And we looked at Romans 1, 18 and following because Romans 1, 18 and following gives us kind of a picture of God's wrath is being revealed and it's being revealed against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness, right? And then it shows a downward spiral. Agreed? People are going, moving further and further and further away from God. God has revealed certain truths in and to. People have rejected what was revealed and started moving downward, right? Now, we looked at Romans 1, 18 and following as a picture of humanity in general. Now, some will argue it's only referring to Gentiles in Romans 1, 18 and following. And then chapter 2 starts talking to the Jews. Either case, what are we going to discover? All of us are sinners, right? So there's this downward descent of man that I think is true in, in some way. And it ends pretty bad, does it not? That those who do such things are worthy of death in verse 32. When we get to chapter 2, what did I want you to focus on in chapter 2? Right? The word judged or judgment is used multiple times. Agreed? We talked about this? Okay. And I said there was, a, there was an apparent contrast going on. What was the contrast? Judgment of God versus the judgment of men. And what did we discover in our first look in Romans chapter 2? That men's judgment is what? 
flawed, right? I think I even have that, I place that even in my notebook. I think that's the title I even wrote down. Um, man's judgment, God's judgment. Man's judgment is flawed. We see that in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man. Whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. It's Remember, there's a literary device seeming to be employed here that he is setting up the reader of chapter 2 because he, he knows that certain people who read chapter 2 are going to look at 1, 18 to 32, and when they get to the end of 32, they're going to give it a loud what? Amen! Condemn those people. And then he says, hey, you who are condemning everyone, wait a minute, you're inexcusable because you do the same things. Now, clearly, I think he's arguing they're doing the same things in a different way, right? Because if they're doing the exact same things, I would hope they wouldn't be <laughs> condemned. I think the point is, is they, they feel somehow superior in some way. They are, these are, in chapter 2, are the externally righteous people, and chapter 1 is the externally unrighteous people, but the people in chapter 2, even though they're externally righteous, they're internally unrighteous because we're all guilty of sin. So he starts off, and look at verse... Um, uh, verse 2, but we are sure that the judgment of God is according... Oh, no, verse 3. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God. Simply put, what did we learn? Man's judgment is flawed. It is wrong. Okay? Now, we'll get back into this in the next hour, but jump down to verse 6. Because in contrast to man's judgment... God's judgment. Look at verse 5. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Speaking of God, verse 6. Who will render to every man according to his deeds. Stop right there. Now, we have a problem. Do we not? According to verse 6, how does God judge? According to our works. According to our deeds. Everyone here has to deal with this truth. Is this the only time this truth is repeated? Not even close. Let's look, and we're going to be coming back to this. Let's look at some cross-references. Everybody ready? Go to Psalm 62, 12. Right, Psalm 62.12 Also unto thee, O Lord, belongest mercy, for thou renderest to every man according to his work. All right. Also unto thee, O Lord, belongeth 
mercy, for thou renderest to every man according to his work. Setting up a principle that God deals with what? People on the basis of their work. All right, we got, we got to work on this. Let's continue. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of cross-references we could do here. Go to Matthew chapter 16. In fact, many Bibles will give you a cross-reference to Matthew 16 from the psalm we just read. Yep, Matthew chapter 16. Verse 27. Every Christian should know all these cross-references, okay? They, they, these, like, everyone should know. I had to do this in, uh, when I was a student at Catholic University, right? Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Now, what does that sound like? That sounds like the final judgment, does it not? And he's going to deal with every person, every person according to what? His works. This would make an argument that what therefore gives you assurance. Now you can see why the, the, the writers of the Canons of Dort went with that being assurance of salvation, can you not? Everyone should say, yes, I can see why. Let's continue. It's not the only passage. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 28. I may have the wrong passage down. Yeah, that's not the right passage. Mm. I'll have to find the John one. Hang on. Let me see if I can find it real quick. I think this book has that reference here. Give me a second. about verse 29? Yes, okay, yeah, verse 28 and 29. Put them together. John 5, 28 and 29. I just didn't write down both references. Uh, John 5, 28 to 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of Whoa, 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 whoa. How do you work that into your theology? Who gets to go to heaven? Who gets to go to hell? All right, I don't know about you. If my understanding of sin is right, which sin is more than just the external act, but the internal reality, I'm not going to heaven. Okay, well, you're all looking at me like, well, but, well, well, sorry, we'll miss you. But I'm try- you're going to be with. Okay, I'm sorry, you're going with me. Okay, I don't think you're. I don't think you're that. Uh, you know that that much better than me. You may think you are, but I don't think you are. Okay. 
Maybe, maybe, maybe one of you are, but I think we're all pretty much in the same boat. Right? Let's continue. Second Corinthians chapter five. We're run out, gonna run out of time here. Second Corinthians five ten. For he must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Are we, are we getting a theme? Are we getting a theme or are we deriving from this? Now, we'll, wait, now we're out of time. There's, there's, still, there's more cross-references to go. Okay? And I didn't even write down all the cross-references. Okay? There's a lot. There is a lot. I had to do this again in Catholic University because uh, the Catholic uh, professor was trying to prove how dumb Protestants are. Like, you know, they, they claim we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. But every passage about judgment is based off <laughs> works. And they're like, we know how to read. You guys don't. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I, I don't know what to say. Okay. So how, what's the typical Protestant response to these passages? Okay, that's a, that wouldn't be a response to that. That'd be a, that would be a secondary statement that has nothing to do with these verses. We have, to have, we have to respond to the verses. What do the verses say? Okay, that's one Protestant response. That the, this judgment has nothing to do about heaven or hell, which would go against John 5, but okay. Some will Protestant argue, this has nothing to do with heaven or hell. I'll be judged according to my works, which will determine the level of reward which I'll receive. That's one approach. Okay? That's one Protestant approach. It's, it's broken. It's a horrible approach because John 5 is dealing with heaven or hell, not with reward. Corinthians may be dealing with reward, which then turns into, is there more than one judgment? Remember, we get into that whole eschatological debate. Okay? All right. What's a second Protestant response? I mean, y'all have... Okay, put it this way. Don't try to give me the Protestant response. You've all been Christians for a long time. These verses aren't new to the Bible. You've had to deal with them at some point in your Christian life. What is your response to these verses? Even if you've never read a theology book, everyone here has to have had answer these verses. What, what was your approach? Everyone here has to have had a, an approach. Please tell me you just ignored these verses and didn't think they mattered. Okay. So what I guess what I'm hearing is the way y'all approach this is these verses say that I'm going to go to heaven or hell based off my works, but it really doesn't mean what it says because my salvation is by Christ alone through faith alone. So basically what I'm hearing is y'all just think that salvation by Christ alone through faith alone cancels out these verses. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Is that is that is, is that the answer everybody has? Okay, so, all right. So I'm trying to understand the hermeneutic here because this is some weird hermeneutics. We got verses that clearly say 
that my judgment is based off my works. There's no way to get around those verses. And what everyone is doing is they're going to a different passages of Scripture and saying, well, this says I'm saved because of what Christ did. Reading, not even, not even, not even rereading these verses, you're just completely canceling these verses out. You're just saying these don't count. Now, this is what my Catholic professor says Protestants do. Okay. Well, I know you don't want to be, but I'm still trying to say, how did you respond? To yeah, you're missing the most common Protestant response. I, I, that everyone, Not one person has given me the common Protestant response. That's in every Bible study, dictionary, commentary, sermon. It's the same. It's this response that's given by every Protestant since forever. No, no, no. That, again, that's, that's going somewhere else and just canceling these. You can't cancel these out. Okay, that's not hermeneutics. I don't know what that is. Okay, you can't just say, well, this says I'm going to go to heaven and if I'm good, I'm going to go to hell if I'm bad. That doesn't count. Even though Jesus said it, <laughs> Jesus didn't know what he's talking about because my theology doesn't allow Jesus to be right. That's not, that's not, please don't, that's not Bible study. What's the Protestant response? Okay, now I, have to, I have to give you the, the you, you've kind of already been given the answer in the canons of Dort. They were giving you the answer. The argument is, Jesus can say we're judged by works because a Christian's work will justify them. Not that the work saves them, but the works demonstrate that they are saved. So Jesus can say we're judged by our works because the works of our life will demonstrate that we're truly saved. That is the common Protestant response. Does that work out hermeneutically? This is, this is the thing. That sounds good because when you're sitting there in a, in a sermon and, and, and the pastor reads this and he says, hey, don't worry about it. All this is saying is that your works will prove that you're saved. Everyone in the church will say, Amen. Go home and eat and take a nap. And no one stopped to go, well, wait a minute. I got about 900 questions. If my works prove my salvation and God's going to judge those works, how many works do I need to prove? What does it look like? Romans Romans tells us God is going to judge us according to our... We can't... This is not some like weird Catholic teaching. Catholics say that and Protestants lose their mind. I'm like, no, Catholics are like, I have a Bible. <laughs> you guys read your... We always condemn Catholics for not reading their Bibles, right? Well, wait a minute. We're, we're the, supposedly the Bible scholars. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Yaz, Yaz's attempt to interpret demonstrated a complete broken hermeneutic. You st- we still have to deal with it. Does that make sense? Now, again, the Protestant answer is, yes, we're judged by our works because if I'm truly a Christian, my works will prove I'm saved. Now, they, now the Protestants will argue, but, but it's not my works. It's the works God is doing through me. Now, now, now you got to even take that. Now, please think that through because if, if God is the one doing the works, then why doesn't he do... So God is only doing certain works in Bobby's life and only doing very few works in Lydia's life. Bobby's got a lot. Lydia, we don't know. 
Maybe one or two. According to Seth, none. According to her sisters and brother, Satan. Right? Okay. Yeah, he's not a teenager yet. Okay. That will change dramatically. Okay. So... So I cre- so I've got, I got us to the problem. I know we're saying, where's the answer? I don't know. But you see why I'm giving you the problem because we're fast approaching it in Romans chapter 2. And you're going to be like, well, wait a minute. How can he judge me according to my deeds? Now, I know what we want. What does everybody want right now? No, everybody wants an easy answer. Everybody wants an easy answer. But if I give you an easy answer and you just walk out the door going, well, that's not much of a problem. I've, I've done you a disservice. Because I can, I can give you an easy answer if you're what? Five miles away from the truth. If I get you up to the truth, you're going to be like, whoa. Ooh, I can't see. Because the closer we get, the more questions we have. All right, we'll stop right there. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, I pray that as we try to understand your basis of judgment, understanding how we should, under, how we should embrace that and how we should prepare for that, Lord, I pray that we do everything we can to be honest with the text and not simply try to explain a text away because we don't like it. I pray this becomes a a way we always handle your word, and I pray that we put that into practice in the next hour. We ask this in Jesus' name. Because people said... you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.